So we have been in the Gospel of Mark, and we are continuing in the Gospel of Mark, a series I'm calling Following the King to the Cross. So if you do have your Bible, get it out with us this morning. Our hope, our joy is to get the church into the text, or as I like to say, to swim in the text, that you would see and understand and know what is happening how the Lord is working, and what he wants us to understand and know. So we are in the uh, Gospel of Mark, chapter 6 this morning, verses 7 through 13. Mark 6, 7 through 13. I will read it for us. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, nor no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed many, anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your joy. We know that you uh, are the God who sings over his people. You rejoice in us. You are not angry with us. You do not punish us. For those who are in Christ Jesus... You sing over us, for we are now your adopted children. And you long for us to know you, to grow in Christ, to increase our joy and our happiness. Uh, Lord, we know that here on earth, that is not always easy to come by. And there will be times when we struggle. There will be times when we uh, experience heartache and grief and suffering. There will be times when we are rejected. And that is where we must come to you this morning, Lord, when we are rejected. Help us, give us courage. Help us to understand. Keep us joyful in your name. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Now, if you don't know, I am the pastor of this church. I am also uh, a, a worker, a paraprofessional at the local elementary school, the American Elementary School. So I'm just the drummer. That's not my main job. So the special education department at Shape Elementary School, it services kids who need extra help with things, behavior issues, learning issues. And most of my days uh, when I go into, into the school are pretty quiet. I go from class to class, helping kids with math or reading or English. But once in a while, my job gets a little crazy. I have been punched, sworn at, slapped, headbutted, stomped on, screamed at, and more. And not just by the teachers. <laughs> I am perfectly okay with this. Perfectly okay with this. I am okay with the kids who punch me and hurl insults at me and try to escape the building. And that is because I signed up for this. I accepted the position. I'll never forget the assistant principal when she hired me. She looked at me and said at least three times, are you sure you want to do this? I agreed that I would take whatever a kid 
could give. Now, I'm not saying that I'm always happy with it. It can be pretty intense. But I do not have a standing appointment with my boss demanding that the school deal with this toxic work environment. (laughs) And that is because I signed up for the toxic work environment. If you sign up to be a Premier League player or join the National Football League, you're not upset, or at least that upset, when you're tackled. If you accept a role as an accountant at a large company, you do not cry foul when you must balance the books. When you become a surgeon, you do not get angry when asked to cut into people. To follow Christ means that we are sent. To follow Christ means we are sent as Jesus' emissaries to herald the gospel, to bring it in to the world. As this text says, when he sends the disciples out, he calls them and he tells them to make calls of repentance to the people. But the very nature of this work and this calling means that we will not always be liked. In fact, we very well may be rejected for our beliefs. And so Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Matthew, you will be hated by all for my namesake. Now he says it right up front. And yet we still tend to get upset about it. We are surprised when we we are treated differently at work or with friends because of our faith. We are angered by the shifting sands of morality in the world. And the problem with that, the problem with our bad responses to rejection is that it can either lead to deep animosity or fear. When rejected by the world, we may lash out with our anger or cower and hide because we are scared. But both of those reactions, both of the polar opposite reactions, do the same thing. They keep us from fulfilling our calling. Anger and fear keeps us from going to the world, to family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we must remind ourselves from time to time the calling to which we have been called. We must remind ourselves that Jesus has called us not to a life of luxury and ease, but as he says, to cross-bearing work. Now, how do we do this? How do we deal with this? How do we prepare for this? I think this passage can get us on our way. So the first of three points is this. One, we must face rejection. We must face rejection. Look at Mark 6, 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now before we actually get into the heart, the meat of our text, I want you to think about the, the two accounts that happen on either side of the one that we are in this morning. So last week, for the first account, Mark 6, 1 through 6, we saw the rejection of Jesus Christ. Despite his powerful teaching and miracles, the crowd in the synagogue denied that he was anything exceptional. They began to turn on him. Even if they did not attack him physically at this point, their suspicions about him were growing. And that is when he decides to send his disciples out. Not when it's going really well. 
He had just been rejected. He could do no miracles except for a a few small ones on the side. Okay, disciples, here you go. Go out on your own. Now, what about the story directly after the one that we're in this morning? It's about John the Baptist. I'm sure you know the story about John the Baptist. He is arrested and then beheaded. He spoke the truth publicly about the marriage of Herod and Herodias, and he was killed for it. Now, why put our account in between these two other ones? And I think the reality is that Jesus wants us, Mark, the writer of this gospel, wants us to face the reality of rejection. A friend of mine told me about the first time he drove a car. And in the States, you get to start learning when you're 15 and a half. It is way too young, way too young. But he had his learner's permit, and his dad handed him the keys to the family Buick. And his father had to sit on the right side because you have to ride with an adult when you're that young. And so he slowly backs out, he tells me. And then his, they get on the road and his father says, take a right. Takes a right. Take a left. He takes a left with all of the blinkers and all of the things that he's supposed to do. But then his father directed him to a place where he said, I want you to go up a little bit to the right. Veer up and to the right. And before he knew it, his father had put him up on to the highway, the freeway, the auto route in the heart of downtown Seattle. My friend had no time to get out of it. He said he gripped the wheel, pushed the gas pedal to the floor and merged slowly into the mass of quickly moving cars. The whole time his father just reassured him, everything's great, you're doing fine, good job. Now, I don't know if the father ever explained himself to his son, but he remembered that story a decade later. A decade later, he remembered his father was preparing his son for life. He was throwing him into the deep end and getting him to swim on his own right away. Jesus throws his disciples into the deep end. Following Jesus will not be easy. It may mean rejection, but that is what we are signing up for. Following Jesus on the one hand is beauty and freedom and glory. But on the other hand, it will not be comfortable. It will mean rejection. Now why? Why are we rejected because of our faith? First, the truth of Christ does not change with our ever-changing world. We are rejected because the truth of Christ does not change with our ever-changing world. In other words, our values and beliefs, the things that we believe because we are Christians, will always be ahead of their time or behind the times. I'll say that again. All of our beliefs, our values, will either be ahead of their time or behind the times. Think about it this way. Every culture, every generation, looks down its nose at the previous one. It always looks down on the previous one. Say we look back on our grandparents. And we believe that some of the things that they did were great. Some of the things they believed were great. But there are things that they did and believed that are crazy to us. They are embarrassing to us. How could they have believed that? Now, here's the problem. Don't you know that the generation after ours 
will be embarrassed by us. As Tim Keller says, 20 to 50% of what we believe today, and I mean the most progressive ideas, the ones we read about in academic journals or in the opinion sections of newspapers, will be looked down on. They will seem culturally backward. They will be embarrassed by us. But that is how the world is. What is culturally freeing is to come to Christ who does not change. His, his world, his life, his teachings, his truth, his grace, they do not change. And so the values that we hold onto as followers of Christ do not change. These values will often be ahead of their time. It was Christian belief that led to the end of the slave trade. But it is also these values and beliefs which will make us seem behind the times. We are not on the right side of history, we are told. God's design for marriage and sexuality has not changed. And we will look, be looked down on for it. So this means, on the one hand, we could be heralded and in the same breath mocked. We will be praised, but also maligned. The truth of Christ does not change with our ever-changing world. Second, the gospel radically differs from the world's understanding of what saves a person. The gospel differs from the world's understanding of salvation. So Mark 6, 12 says this. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Repent, that's a big Christian word, repentance. It just simply means to change your mind, to turn where you are going, to turn from something and turn to something itself. And in this context, of course, it is to turn away from sin and wickedness and turn to Jesus and follow him. And it is a very specific idea of salvation. It is unlike any other religion or world philosophy. And that is because the driving philosophy of the world and many religions is this. If I am good then I deserve acceptance. If I do well in this life, then I will be treated in this life and the life after. And if you know the gospel, you know that it teaches the opposite. As hard as it is to hear, the gospel is necessary because we are far worse than we thought. We are not good and cannot become good on our own. If I am good, I deserve acceptance. The problem is that we are not good and we will therefore never deserve acceptance. Mark 6.10 And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now, that was a very common practice in that time for Jews. When they would walk through a Gentile territory, those who were not Jewish, they would brush the feet off of, brush the, the, the dust off of their feet as a sort, of, a, a, um, a sort of statement saying that you are judged and condemned by God, by the God of Israel. But where are they doing it now? They are in Jewish territory. They are leaving Jewish homes. And the ones who reject them do not accept their teaching. They brush off the dust. They shake it off as a testimony 
against them. And what does that say to me? What does that say to you? That no one is right with God. That every person is under condemnation. And so followers of Christ have this extraordinary task of calling people to turn from their sin and to trust Christ. And that is hard and we will be rejected for it because our sin is so intertwined with our identities. And so the call to repentance will sound like hell to so many people and it will invite rejection. How dare you tell me to turn from who I am? How dare you say that what I do is sinful? The gospel radically differs from the world's understanding of what saves a person. Third, the forces of evil hate Jesus and they will always seek to stir up hatred against Christians. The reality is that Christians will always experience rejection. And they will always experience rejection because of the forces of darkness. They are always there and they will never fully allow the gospel to flourish. They will fight against it constantly. They hate Jesus. They hate grace. And so they will stand, they will stir up hatred against Christians because we bear the name of Jesus and we spread this message that is anathema to them. And so friends, let me be clear when I say you will never be cool enough. You will never be winsome enough or smart enough or nice enough for everyone to like you. No matter what you do, if you believe in Christ, if you speak Christ, if you live as Christ, you will be rejected. This passage is here to help us face that reality, to be reminded rejection is coming. And so we must prepare for it. That's the second point. Prepare for rejection. Mark 6, 8. He, Jesus, charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. So how do we prepare ourselves for rejection? Because it's coming. I think Jesus' instructions here are actually quite practical and helpful, and they are meant to get us moving and going out so that we are ready to go. First, he sends them out two by two. You see that there. Two by two. In other words, Jesus wanted them and he wants us to do ministry together. You could watch a church service from your home. You could read the Bible every day, pray every day on your own. And yet he says, meet, do not neglect to meet together because we need each other. The world is too hard. This task is too heavy. We must go together from place to place. Ecclesiastes 4 says, there are two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone and he falls and has not another to lift him up. Go out two by two. Do ministry together. Second, do not be encumbered by the things of this world, or you could say it this way, don't let the things of this world, especially worldly, earthly things, hold you back. Mark 6, verse 8. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, nor money in their 
belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Now, the obvious meaning in this passage, I think, is that Jesus does not want them to be encumbered by the things of the world. They should be careful with the possessions that they have. They should be careful about gathering too many things lest they become too comfortable and stop relying on God. Now take that for what it is. Think about your life. Are there things in your life that encumber you, that keep you from going out? But I also think that this Jesus is saying that his disciples need to rely on the hospitality of those to whom they are preaching. Think about that. When they go out, they got nothing, no food, They don't have two tunics on, so they're going to be too cold. And so when they go to preach, they have to go into the homes of people who may reject them. They should go inside, receive their food and drink, accept their help, sleep in their home. Do not stand outside and just yell for them to repent. Go in and be with them. On the one hand, this would make them accountable to their hearers. On the other hand, it would lower their defenses and perhaps enable trust. We do not stand back from those who do not believe and just shout repentance. We go and we be with them. We don't give them any ammunition against us. This is all we have. This is all we are. Learn about Jesus. Third, help people practically. Help people practically. The last verse in our passage is verse 13. And they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil who were sick and healed them. And so Jesus gives authority not only to preach, but also to help. Not just to preach, but also to help physically. And that is because of the gospel is about the full rejuvenation of life. It is about the healing and awakening of our bodies and minds and souls. And so, of course, gospel preaching should go hand in hand with helping people and their practical problems. Notice that he doesn't say, I want you only to heal those people who accept it, who accept me. It seems that anyone who accepted it was given it. You would be amazed, friends, at how often people will respond with the affirmative, with a yes, if you look at them simply and say, can I pray for you? Especially if they are struggling with some issue or ailment. Even if they do not believe, if you say, can I pray for you right now, they will likely accept it. I was preparing for rejection but we need to go to this last one, this last point. We must endure rejection. We must endure rejection. Mark 6, 7, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And you know, you know this is merely the first time that the disciples are sent out. They are sent out in the name of Jesus with his authority. And they will be sent out again when he rises from the dead. He will tell them at the end of Matthew, And all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
And we know now, looking back at history, that by these commands, we read the book of Acts, we know that by these commands, this command to go, Christianity would explode into the world over the next few hundred years. But we also know that this explosion of Christianity, of faith in Christ, did not come without a cost. The early Christians faced an incredible amount of rejection and suffering. Saul was stoned to death. Peter was either crucified upside down, upside down or perhaps he was put into the Colosseum covered in animal skins where dogs got the best of him. The sword of Herod killed James and thousands and thousands of other Christians whose names are only known by God would die for their faith. And this, of course, doesn't account for the economic, social, and emotional rejection and displacement that Christians experienced when they aligned themselves with Jesus. And so when I read about that, my question is, how do they do it? What gave them courage? What kept them believing and following Jesus in the face of unbelievable persecution? And I think the answer is only that they had seen their Savior and Lord. They had seen their Savior and Lord experience complete rejection for them. At the end of the last book of the Lord of Rings, the humans and the elves are in an epic, desperate battle against the forces of Sauron. And along with this warring army sent by Sauron, he has sent these things called ring wraiths. Wicked, powerful creatures who attack with fury and malice. But of all the ring wraiths, there was one that was the most powerful, the foulest and cruelest. His name was the witch king of Angmar. In this ring wraith, they found the king of Rohan. His name was Theod, and he found him and he struck him down. And when that happens in the book and in the, even in the movie, you feel it all seems lost. But then something happens. Something amazing happens. Theoden's daughter, Eowyn, who should not have been there. They did not send women to war. But she went to fight. She reveals herself. She reveals herself to this witch with rage and with passion, and she says, you stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone if you be not deathless for living or dark undead. I will smite you if you touch him. And then Tolkien writes, the helm of her secrecy had fallen from her. Her bright hair, released from its bonds, gleamed with pale gold upon her shoulders. Her eyes gray as the sea were hard and fell, and yet tears were on her cheek. A sword was in her hand, and she raised her shield against the horror of her enemy's eyes. Now, Eowyn was not on the battlefield alone that morning. With her, her companion was a little hobbit, small and fearful, named Mary. And he stood watching the scene unfold. It was unbelievable to his eyes. And when he saw it, when he saw her reaction, something stirred in his heart. Eowyn it was, and Dernhelm also, 
For into Mary's mind flashed the memory of the face that he saw at the writing from Dunharo, the face of one that goes seeking death, having no hope. Pity filled his heart and great wonder, and suddenly the slow-kindled courage of his race awoke. He clenched his hand. She should not die, so fair, so desperate. At least she should not die alone, unaided. And little hobbit runs into battle to join her, and they slay the witch king together. What gave the early Christians courage and passion? Why did they accept the brutal realities of rejection? The answer is they had opened their eyes and they had seen the Lord. They'd seen the Lord who had created all things and who had come to them to walk in their shoes, live in their stead, and then walk slowly, slowly. But he did not stop until he was crucified. Jesus was rejected by his people. Jesus was rejected by the world. Jesus was rejected even by his own disciples. And we know that on the cross, Jesus was rejected by his Father for us. But when we see Jesus, we must not pity him. We do not look in his eyes and see that there is no hope left. For Jesus, when he died, we know that his eyes were filled not with fear, but with joy and with hope. Hebrews 12, 2, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, we must act. We must rise. We must follow Jesus, our King, our Lord, our champion, into the world with the gospel. It will not be easy. It will bring pain, heartache, and rejection, but he will be with us. And when he looks upon us, we will see his joyful eyes. We will be gripped by his glory and love, and we will remember that he is coming back soon. Let's pray. Good and heavenly Father, we ask that by your spirit we would see Jesus. As we go into communion together, may we see him again. That he experienced rejection for our sake and for the sake of the world. It is hard for me to understand how you can use uh, creatures like us, so frail, so weak, often so double-minded, blame-shifting, and yet you do. And you fill us with your spirit and you say, go. <laughs> we are not going to always do it well. We will fail. We will run. We will often get angry. We ask only that you would grow us, that you would give us a heart for the people who are lost. And in your rich mercy, we would take part in this extraordinary cosmic effort. Help us now. In Jesus' name, amen.